What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, the weekly NBA show over at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam. Today, we're talking big men. Can you invest in centers? Should you, or are you just burning up your money by doing it? Uh, let's get right into it and find out. So we're starting off by taking a look at one of the hottest players in the NBA. That's the Joker, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets. Not only has he been performing well on the court, he's also been a steady increase all season on the card market as well. If you're listening to the podcast, obviously you can't see the chart on the screen right now, but I'm tracking two cards. Those are Jokic's base and also red, white, and blue Prism PSA 10 rookie cards. Didn't want to only include Prism in this chart, but they were the only two cards that could create any kind of meaningful chart at all. Uh, so that's what I went with. Going back to the beginning of the season, his red, white, and blue PSA 10 rookie is up 128%, and his base PSA 10 rookie is up 147%. So who says Prism is dead? Obviously, that's not the case universally, but... Uh, certainly not dead for Nikola Jokic, and it's well-deserved. The top of the Kia MVP watch ladder has changed several times throughout the year. And we know at the beginning of the season, LeBron looked like a lock. That was until he got hurt. Uh, Joel Embiid then became the clear front runner, but he missed 10 games. That probably hurts his chances, too. Uh, here, the current standings from NBA.com, and obviously this is all an opinion at the moment since the award is voted on by the writers, but the current favorite is our boy, Nikola Jokic, followed up by Damian Lillard, then James Harden, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Joel Embiid, Kawhi Leonard, Kyrie Irving, and then bringing up the pack at number 10 is Devin Booker. So our favorite Serbian big man is sitting at the top, and for good reason. On the season, he's averaging 26.3 points, 11 rebounds, 8.6 assists, 1.5 steals, and 0.6 blocks per game. Only three players have ever averaged even 25 points, 10 rebounds, and 8 assists. That's Oscar Robertson, Russell Westbrook, and then obviously Nikola Jokic. So pretty decent company for the seven-footer. And of course, he's just incredibly efficient while he's compiling those stats. Over a 60% effective field goal percentage, much better than league average. He's shooting just about 43% from three on three and a half attempts per game from deep. And he is sporting a 120.8 offensive rating with a 112.4 defensive rating, which is good for a 8.4 net rating. That's all obviously very good. Compared to the rest of the league, Jokic ranks first in offensive win shares, first in win shares, first in block box plus minus, and also in value over replacement player. He's so far ahead than most players in those categories too. If you just look at win shares, the gap between first place Jokic and second place Giannis Antetokounmpo is the same as the gap between second place Giannis and 37th place Robert Williams. Look at box plus minus. His gap over second place is the same as the gap from second to 12th. By VORP, value of replacement player, the gap is the same as second to 16th. So, uh, yeah, pretty much crushing it out there, at least on the offensive end. And then by player efficiency rating, PER, he is in second place behind only Joel Embiid. Again, pretty good. So much deserved recognition for Nikola Jokic this year. 
And it's looking like the award will be Jokic's to lose. Since trading for Aaron Gordon, the Nuggets are 4-0. The lineup of Will Barton, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, and Nikola Jokic has played 22 and a half minutes together per night. Uh, it's their most used lineup, and that group has outscored opponents by just a hair under 34 points per game. So an absolute wrecking ball of a unit, unit and the feelings are, are clearly feeling pretty good in Denver. Now that all brings us to the question of the day, which is, can you invest in centers? And obviously Jokic is a clear yes, but who else could be and what types of things should we be looking for? Now in the past 10 years or, or so, 10 years or less maybe, centers have really been labeled in, in one of three categories. There's stretch fives, there's rim rolling bigs, and then there's the traditional back to the basket centers. Uh, for the most part, back-to-the-basket bigs just don't really exist anymore, so we're really talking about the first two categories. Uh, there are the popular rim rollers in the league, and, and then there are popular stretch fives. And if I were to put out a poll, I'm not going to, uh, but if I were, I believe that stretch fives would be considered the more attractive archetype for an investment, especially when you consider some of the names like Jokic, Porzingis, Carl Towns, Joel Embiid, all guys who are generally thought of as pretty stretchy bigs. You know, most people would say that the modern style centers are more attractive investments, and the association with that label is just simply three-point shooting. But that brings me to the question, who's really a stretch five? Uh, credit for all of this uh, thought exercise goes to Owen Phillips, by the way. He doesn't know who I am, uh, but I do follow him. You can find him on Instagram and on Twitter at Owen LHJ Phillips. Or you can just go to his blog, theF5.substack.com. Uh, you can subscribe there and get the weekly email as I do. Really good stuff to be found there. His article from two weeks ago really got me thinking about this question. By the way, the data that I used in this slide is from that article too. So here's the premise. If you were to come up with an answer to the question, what makes a stretch five? I'm sure that nearly the universal would answer universal answer would be just something along the lines of a center who can shoot threes, right? Now the follow-up question, what's the benefit of a center that can shoot threes? You know, it's not just the novelty of a fourth or fifth player that can shoot it from deep. The incentive for teams searching for those guys is that a stretch five should open up the paint for other players. I wanna consider the Bucks, for instance. If the Bucks had a Clint Capella type of player at the five, you know, a traditional rim rolling center that really needs to be in the paint to be effective on offense, that would obviously have a very negative effect on Giannis Antetokounmpo since he needs that same area of the paint to operate. A Capella taking up the paint, dragging his defender into Giannis's running lanes would obviously not be beneficial for the offense. So the Bucks bring in Brooke Lopez, a big who can shoot threes and ideally take the opposing big somewhat out of the lane. So a stretch five is called a stretch five, not because he stretches the floor, but because he stretches the defense. And we have to keep that idea in mind because I'm gonna bring up a chart now so that we can see which bigs are actually stretching the defense. And again, if you're listening on podcast, I apologize, but I'll be describing the chart as best as I can. Or if that fails you, just be sure to rate the podcast five stars, then go over to YouTube, subscribe and thumb up the video and watch it there, please too. So I've pulled up a chart. You are looking at five columns to the right of each player's names. The first two columns are regarding uncontested three-point attempts. 
The third and fourth columns are regarding contested three-point attempts. This is the methodology that Owen Phillips used in his article. Uh, the tracking data all comes from stats.nba.com. The uncontested means that the closest defender was over six feet away. And then contested shots means the closest defender was within six feet. So, for instance, let's look at that Nikola Jokic call, uh, row there. He's at the top of the list. He's attempted 66 three-pointers with a defender nowhere near him. He's hitting those threes at nearly 50%. It's a 48.5% clip when he's wide open from three, uncontested. On the flip side, defenders have contested 86 three-point attempts from Jokic. He's hitting those threes at almost a 38.5% rate. So pretty good regardless of where the nearest defender is. But here's the point of this exercise. Comparing the number of threes that he takes uncontested to the number that he takes contested, He's more frequently shooting with a hand in his face as there's more contested jumpers. And he's leading all centers in this category, shooting 56.6% of his three-point attempts with a defender nearby. So the point is, Jokic could really actually be considered a stretch five since he's actually stretching the defense. The opposing big is covering him around the arc more often than not, dragging him out of the lane, opening up the cutting lanes for other players. And then it just goes down from there on this list. Uh, there are six players who are being contested at the arc over 45% of the time. And for that reason, I consider them stretch bigs. Those are Nikola Jokic, Kristaps Porzingis, Bobby Portis, Chris Boucher, DeMarcus Cousins, and Carl Anthony Towns. In my opinion, again, this is my opinion, those are the six that are true stretch fives since they're actually doing what a stretch five is supposed to do and stretching the defense. And then if you go down the list from there, and I should add that the next five names on this list, they're not just the next five overall. I just instead just went and handpicked five, uh, you know, names that we currently, you know, we generally consider more stretchy centers. Uh, so Nikola Vucevic, he's down well below that. He stretches the defense on his threes less than 35% of the time. Then it's Christian Wood and Miles Turner, only both 27.2% of the time. Brooke Lopez, only 24% of the time. And then Joel Embiid is at the bottom of this list anyways. That's less than 20% of the time that he's actually stretching the defense. Now, they're all fairly effective three-point shooters, but defenses are anywhere from twice to five times as likely to leave them uncovered and just sag into the lane on defense. So four out of the five times teams would rather have them be just try to beat them on threes and just sag off of them into the lane, cut off Ben Simmons. Three out of the four times for Brooke Lopez uh, that they're sagging off him, trying to cut off Giannis Antetokounmpo on his way to the hoop. So really those two guys and some of the other names on the list above them, they're just not truly stretch fives. You know, they can shoot from deep pretty well for seven footer footers, but it's just not opening anything up for their teammates most of the time. So in my opinion, we should just stop using this term stretch five so loosely since the majority of centers, even the majority of three-point shooting centers, aren't really stretching much of anything. And for that reason, it's also not a good methodology when considering what centers to invest in since, for instance, Embiid is at the bottom of this list and Bobby Portis is near the top. Clearly, that doesn't reflect how we think about them in the card market. Uh, although I should say that Nikola Jokic being at the very top of this list by a wide margin, clearly that's a very good thing for him. So let's turn our attention to the players who have the ball in their hand the most or the players who touch the ball the most. And really, that's two different questions. We're going to be looking at them side by side. Any guesses who leads the league in touches per game? 
The player who touches the ball most per game on average is our boy, Nikola Jokic. He touches the basketball just over 100 times per game. Down the list behind him in touches are Demontis Sabonis at 97.7 touches, James Harden at 95.1, Russell Westbrook at 90.2, Luka at 89.6, Malcolm Brogdon at 88.4, Trey Young and LeBron James both at 87.9, Darren Fox at 85.8, and then Ben Simmons at 85.7. That's the top 10 in touches per game. Of course, not every single touch is equal since some players touch the ball once and dribble the ball for 20 seconds. Some just catch and shoot. So I also have a column right next to it for time of possession and minutes total, minutes total per game on average. Jokic's 101 touches per game equate to 4.6 minutes total per game that he has the ball in his hand. So bonus is at 3.5. Every other player on that list that I mentioned before that's below them is quite a bit higher in minute total. And that's because they're not bigs. Most of them do end up bringing the ball down the court. So Luka Doncic actually leads the entire league in time of possession at 9.1 minutes per game. And then it goes all the way down to Ben Simmons at 6.2 minutes of possession per game. Now, outside of maybe a few precise, uh, surprises, generally speaking, these are all names that have been extremely popular on the card market and, and just in the NBA general fan base at one time or another over the past several years. And it's understandable. You know, the players who have the ball more are simply going to have that much more exposure. And high exposure generally leads to a pretty high demand on the card market too. So Jokic leads the league in touches, not nearly leading in time of possession, but let's compare him to other centers. Compared with true centers, so I'm, I'm really just looking at players that play a majority of the time at the center position instead of a majority at the power forward, some you know split time back, back and forth. But compared to other true centers, Jokic is blowing everyone out of the water, both in total touches per game and in time of possession per game. There are only 10 centers in the league who touch the ball over 50 times per game. Behind Jokic, in order, they are Nikola Vucevic, Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, Bam Adebayo, Andre Drummond, Chris Epps-Bertzingis, Mason Plumley, Jonas Valanciunas, and Al Horford. Vooch is sitting at 76 touches per game, and it goes all the way down to Horford at 53.6. And then by time of possession, Bam Adebayo and Joel Embiid own the ball only two-thirds of the total time that Jokic has it, but they're at a healthy three-ish minutes per game. So still holding the ball quite a bit for a center. Everyone else is below that on the list. Looking at touches per game, the first five names on this list are all in the top 50 of any position in total touches per game. So that's Jokic, Vucevic, Embiid, Towns, and Adebayo. They're all in the top 50 players overall that see the ball the most. And that's interesting to me because when you consider other things like their age and their, produ their productivity with those touches, four out of those five names are among the most interesting investable names in the league as centers at the moment. Obviously, I'm talking about Nikola Jokic at the top and then Embiid, Towns, and Bam at a bio. And here's my overarching thought on this whole topic. You know, the easy way to approach this whole question, you know, does anyone care about centers? Should we invest in centers? Are centers dead? And the easy answer is just a broad brushstroke the whole thing and say that no one cares about centers, um, but really that's just being overly simplistic and it's also incorrect. You do need to be more selective than other positions in my opinion, but if a center gets the ball a lot, he can be just as attractive of an investment as any other position simply because people are seeing him do stuff on the court. 
with most centers, that just isn't the case. But some of the centers we collectively think the highest of, they're not all stretch fives. They're not all great defenders. But for all of them, the offense flows through them quite a bit more than most other fives. Uh, by the way, DeMontis Sabonis, obviously he was one of the big surprises on the previous slide. He only plays center, according to basketball reference, about 18% of his possessions this year. And that's because of Miles Turner being on the team. Uh, that's why he's not on this chart of centers. If that pair suddenly, you know, eventually got split up, he's suddenly a much more attractive investment, in my opinion, as a Jokic light type of player. And I, and I think he would start to get noticed as such. You know, especially if Jokic wins MVP this year as the first center to do so since Shaquille O'Neal, that'd open up the conversation for a lot of other guys that play pretty similar to him. Uh, but let's just look at these four guys that I have circled here. Look at their card markets to see if center investments are in fact dead in the water. So I'm going to look at the prices of each of their Prism Silver PSA 10 rookie cards and then see what type of returns you could have had if you bought these cards back in the middle of October, which was really a down point in the offseason and which I could have had too since I didn't buy any of these. But I wish I had for the most part. Uh, first off, the last Jokic Prism Silver PSA 10 rookie went for $6,000 on auction. That was March 12th. Since the middle of October, that represents a 336% increase, up, 1, up from 1375 bucks on October 15th. Embiid's last Prism Silver PSA 10 rookie card auction was back on February 22nd. That ended at $40,050, which represents a 377% increase since the middle of October. Uh, so two huge returns on two centers, which is understandable for both of them since they've both been frontline MVP candidates at different points this season. Next up is Bam Adebayo, last going for $610 on March 28th, only an 18% increase since the middle of October. Uh, two things, the Heat only got bounced from the finals on October 11th, so the data points that I had to choose from were just immediately after that. Uh, there wasn't a whole ton of time to cool off yet, obviously. So the starting point is comparatively higher than the first two players. Also, the Heat started out the season pretty cold, so that's something to consider. But still, a modest 18% return for another center. The S&P 500 would be jealous. And then the last one to consider isn't a surprise, uh, but it, you know, it is also disappointing, but it's not a surprise. Um, does it present an interesting opportunity, which we'll get into in a second? That's Carl Anthony Towns, his Prism Silver PSA 10. The last auction ended on March 31st at $1,125, and that is down 15% since the middle of October. As awesome of a player as he is, he's missed 20 games this year. His team does have the worst record in the entire league, so a decrease overall, not exactly a shock. But that does bring me to two center-related storylines, which have been popping around in my head for a week or more. I want to consider first Carl Towns' case as a good buy-low candidate at the moment. All the numbers are there, both the counting stats and the touches per game, and that goes along with a skill set that really lends itself to highlight plays, and he's generally just a very popular name. He's one that's primed to rebound in price over the long term. Probably not much in short-term return, but long-term I believe there will be. And this is what I've been thinking about with him in particular. At the moment, the Timberwolves have the worst record in the NBA, the entire league. They're going to do everything in their power to keep it that way because they owe Golden State the next first round pick if, if it's outside of the top three. It's top three protected this year. They have every incentive to try to keep that pick for themselves by losing. You know, the draft is a long way off and obviously so much will change. But at the moment, if the Wolves were in the top three, they'd probably be choosing between Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, and Jalen Suggs. 
Suggs as a point guard. Cade Cunningham would be what I assume would be a nominal ball handler at the NBA level. And you have to imagine that the Wolves will want to try moving forward by building around one of those two and then Anthony Edwards. And not to say that they couldn't keep D'Angelo Russell around with that, but I can't imagine that D'Angelo Russell would want to stick around, especially after this year, which has been mostly a lost season for him. And if the Wolves are trading Towns' best friend in, in Russell, and I, and I said the same thing back in a video in early January, honestly seems a little bit more likely now the wolves will probably try to trade carl towns for an enormous package of picks and young players that are aligned more closely in age with their young backcourt clearly there's a lot of ifs there but at this point that really just seems to be the most likely scenario you know, just having seen front offices make the same type of calculations pretty much my whole life but in reality even if he's not traded if they're building that young team and he's the lead star He's going to look pretty good in Minnesota and pretty attractive on the card market. But if he's traded elsewhere and gets a fresh start, that will really boost his card market overall. So his cards are a loser so far this season, but long term, the outlook is still really, really good in my opinion. Now, the other center related topic that I've been thinking about, and I say center related because he's not a center, it revolves around Zach Levine. Uh, this is center-related because it revolves around the Bulls' trade for a very good center in Nikola Vucevic. Uh, that trade signals that the Bulls will attempt to extend Zach Levine this offseason. Now, Levine is under contract for one more year at $19.5 million. And there's a lot of complication to all this due to the NBA cap rules. But if they were to simply extend him this offseason, the very most that they could offer him would be four years, $104.8 million. He would likely say no to that because if he waited just one more year, he could then sign a four-year max extension of four years, $189.3 million, or $85 million more just for waiting another year to sign. And he could get that, he could get that from any team in the league. Now, the other option would be to renegotiate this coming season's pay and then extend him a four-year max, essentially locking him into four years, $151.7 million. I think that's right. Assuming that Levine wouldn't accept a discount to sign a year early, and also assuming that the Bulls don't want to let him hit unrestricted free agency and then potentially lose him for nothing, this seems like the most likely path forward. And then the Bulls will be locked into Levine, Vucevic, and their young guys without a whole ton of other wiggle room. But then, as an investment, now it becomes kind of a question mark for me if this is how it all takes place. Now, this has been Levine's best season, and it's been the best team that he's been on, but they're still 20 and 28 with the 10th best record in the Eastern Conference. Levine has improved all around on the court to put himself in this position to be a max extension candidate, but scoring is still his best trait by far, and, he's, and he is one of the best in the league at it. But if you look at his scoring, in games where he scores over 35 points, which there are 12 such games this year, the Bulls are 8-4. and four. That's, that's good. That's fine. 66% winning percentage. Great. But if he's not putting up superhuman scoring efforts, and if he just scores in the range of his actual season average, if he scores between 20 and 34 points per game, then the Bulls are only 8-18. Eight and 18. Even 25 to 34 points, they're only 4-11 and 11 overall. If he scores less than 20 points, the Bulls are four and five. So basically, my concern is that he's extended, which would be great for him, great for his family. I'd be happy for him. But I'm not sure that we have you know much of any basis to assume that he would be able to turn the Bulls into a perennial winner with Vucevic. You know, Patrick Williams is another important piece on that team. He'll be another year older, another year, another year better. But will that be enough to ever get the Bulls into even the top four seed in the Eastern Conference? 
really kind of hard to say, and, and I don't necessarily feel super well at, about that. Now, I am prognosticating again, but if the Bulls do extend Levine this summer, I'm sure there would be some initial excitement that would probably make his card market spike, but I don't think of him as a super long-term investment. I'd be happy to sell if you were holding still then, and then just be happy with whatever profit you can get. Could be totally wrong about all that, but I just don't really think that I am, which is why I'm sharing it with you. So uh, there you have it. Lots of stats today, lots of facts today, some guesswork, uh, but it's all in good fun. But that is all I have for you today. I want to thank you for taking out the time from your day to watch this episode. I truly appreciate it. Don't take that for granted at all. And I'll see you again next week. Thanks again.